0: We are in the Gospel of Mark, chapter 11, beginning in verse 27. They, meaning Jesus and the disciples, came to Jerusalem. And as he was walking in the temple, the chief priests and the scribes and the elders came to him and began saying to him, by what authority are you doing these things? Or who gave you this authority to do these things? And Jesus said to them, well, I will ask you one question and you answer me. And then I will tell you by what authority I do these things. Was the baptism of John from heaven or from men? Answer me. They began reasoning among themselves, saying, If we say from heaven, he will say, Then why didn't you believe him? But shall we say from men? They were afraid of the people, for everyone considered John to have been a real prophet. Answering Jesus, they said, We do not know. And Jesus said to them, Nor will I tell you by what authority I do these things. Humanity from the get-go has had a very real enemy. And this enemy is stronger and worse than any nation or cobble of nations. It is stronger than any nuclear power. It is larger and more vast than all the armies of the history of mankind. Over the millennia, over the thousands and thousands of years, Satan has been wrecking havoc on the human race from day one. What is telling is that it doesn't matter if you are a flawed human being, as we all are, or if you are the unsullied, that means spotless, perfect son of God, Satan's tactics remain unchanged. What also is unchanged is that knowing the enemy is the first step in defeating the enemy. That is why in our nation's current budget requests that are yet to be voted into law for the 2017 year, national intelligence and military intelligence has a request in for $70 billion. Now, those figures just kind of escape me. So maybe it would help to think of how much money that is of seeing a stack of 1000 $1 million bills times 70. That's a lot of money. That's the priority of getting to know one's enemy. That's how vital it is. And it is absolutely true in the spiritual realm as well. As you get to know the enemy of mankind, you will see that Satan's two priorities for existence are, one, subverting the person and the plans of God, And two, subverting the person and the plans of you and me. The good news is, and this is a good news, bad news kind of thing. The good news is, is that priority one is already a lost cause for our enemy. When he had disarmed the rulers and authorities, Paul writes to the church of the Colossians in chapter 2 verse 15, he made a public spectacle of them, depending on your translation, having triumphed over them through them. When Jesus went to the cross, it sealed the victory of all who follow him and believe in him. It sealed Satan's fate as already a vanquished foe. That's the good news. The bad news is priority two is where the devil's energies are vested. According to 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 8, we are told, Be of sober spirit, be on the alert, for your adversary the devil prowls about like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. And he is intent to that end. And when Satan is vested in messing up the works, there is nothing that he will stop at. Nothing. And he will be relentless. And I was tempted, but I resisted. I could give so many illustrations of this from current events, just from this recent election season. But since that's an emotional trigger for some, I will instead (laughs) use no less a controversial issue, but is biblically absolutely clear and that is, for point of illustration, I referenced the homosexual marriage referendums from our state's relatively recent past. Again, to illustrate the point of the enemy's resolve and of his tactics. If you were as deeply involved in the public discourse and you were as involved as I was in the public exposure of the truth about the destructive nature of the homosexual lifestyle for the ten years leading up to the normalizing of such behaviors as I was, then you would have a much greater appreciation for what I'm going to be talking about. Remember, I wrote for the Sentinel the K.J., for just about a decade. And then from there I went on to Maine in the morning on the secular stations covering the state of Maine, the Maritimes, into New Hampshire on live call-in radio with Mike Violet and Eric Leimbach, fielding whatever came along. The arguments were originally couched in the language of privacy. You know the clarion call of the day what someone does in the privacy of their own bedroom is nobody's business. Oh, but when it was discovered that if the advocates did, in fact, keep their conduct private, then nobody would know, which defeated their real and whole purpose of mainstreaming such behaviors. Satan works through human Agency. The Apostle Paul tells us in his letter to the church at Ephesus in chapter 6, beginning in verse 12, we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, or some translations, our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but it is, it is against principalities and powers and rulers in the heavenly forces and world forces in darkness. Those are referring to demonic powers, not human beings, but demonic forces. Therefore, in light of that, take up the full armor of God so that you will be able to resist in the evil day and having done everything to stand firm. And so the privacy strategy worked against them. And did Satan throw in the towel? Of course not. He just regrouped and he craftily modified the argument. Now fairness or better discrimination in employment, and housing, in being able to obtain loans, became the new battle cry. And yet this was fabricated. This was fabricated using absolutely undocumented and unverifiable so-called examples of it. Or they would take that rare isolated incident that was an absolute outlier, but make it a national event and portray it as if it was the norm. And didn't Satan masterfully compel the populace to ignore the facts appealing to the language of equality. And how skillful and crafty was that? Because in doing so, anyone who disagreed could now be dismissed out of hand as a bigot. It didn't matter that the hard research demonstrated with clarity that none of what they were contending was true. And in fact, the opposite is what the real situation was. Meaning if there was discrimination in any of those specified areas, it was in fact provable, documentable, as I did in my columns, that it was reverse discrimination in favor of the devotees of the lifestyle. And yet despite that, the deception carried the day. Well, once that little victory was won and that little hill was conquered, the next calculated satanic scheme cleverly embraced The emotional. Homosexuals used the language of compassion. They demanded that a compassionate embracing of their lifestyle, implying that until that happened, the horrid, though make-believe, discrimination against them prohibited such things as their partner from visiting them in the hospital. Patently untrue that it prohibited them from their partners from obtaining medical information on them, which is patently untrue. That is totally up to the patient, which supposedly would have impeded their partners from having inheritance rights, which is absolutely ridiculous. None of it true. None of it were true. And yet by gaining incremental favor due to the craftiness of the enemy of their souls as well as ours, Satan, again, through human agency, meaning working through individuals behind the scenes, refused to ever settle. It's never throw-in-the-tile situation with the enemy of our souls. Proof positive, 1995. I excerpt for you a column that I wrote, again, for the Sentinel and the Kennebec Journal. Quoting myself, A case in point is a recent letter to the editor from a man in Pittsfield who writes that all the gay community is asking for is legal protection of employment, housing, credit, and justice in crime situations should an individual's homosexuality be made public. Sounds reasonable, but is it true? Former Governor John McKernan, in the last legislative session, before vetoing the gay rights bill that was up for vote, offered the gay and lesbian lobby a compromise. While the compromise stopped short of granting special class status to the homosexual community, it granted the very assurances of protection and equality in the areas mentioned above. To many people's dismay, they turned it down. A reasonable conclusion is that the same basic rights as everyone else is not what they were after. And they have now obtained many of their demands and many more through human agency, recently through human agency of the former president where Satan dismantled common sense and medical science and genetic observation, obtaining something that they hadn't even really attempted yet. And that is the scurrilous, what I'll just call the bathroom law, and I won't elaborate. All because, again, Satan is relentless. He is unbending. He is resolute, and he is unswerving. Now, If this is his resolve in mere human affairs, remember that's priority number two, imagine his resolve in eliminating God's plan of redemption, priority number one, that is, subverting the purpose and the plans of God. And Satan has not changed his modus operandi. He will incite people, as we know from history, through deceit, as he did at the very outset in the Garden of Eden. Oh, surely God did not say. He will incite people through force of violence, as he did at Sodom. He will incite people through murder, as he did at Calvary. When Jesus was on the cross, Satan thought that he had won. End of my introduction to today's passage. So now, through the advantage of time that we have by being able to look back with what I just said as sort of an omniscient backdrop. In Mark's historical record that we are in this morning, Satan does not yet know. Remember now, we're back in the gospel, okay, several thousand years ago. And Satan doesn't yet know that he is going to be defeated once and for all time. And so, he is giving it all he can through human agency. With that somewhat protracted introduction, We go again to Mark chapter 11, verses 27 and 28. Jesus and the disciples came again to Jerusalem, and as he was walking in the temple, the chief priests, the scribes, and the elders came to him. And, referring to the text before this that we've talked about in past weeks, in Jesus' cleansing of the temple, began saying to Jesus, By what authority are you doing these things? Or, who gave you this authority to do these things? Let us not forget, again, I've been expositing the Gospel of Mark for a long time now as we work our way through it, that the overarching theme, as we have seen from the beginning, is that they, and I'll just leave they right now in quotes, they are out to get Jesus, and they have been. This isn't the first time that they will not give up, for they are Satan's pawns. The three specific groups that Mark names comprise what was called the Sanhedrin. Ironically, the Sanhedrin was the Jewish high court of justice. And let's remember that now again, we have the advantage of looking back and seeing all these details in hindsight. To the religious leaders of the day, though, Jesus was just another no-account troublemaker as far as they were concerned. And this nobody comes to the temple of God in a whirlwind and he starts going on this rampage and overturning tables and scattering people's livelihoods and even physically assaulting them with whips because they were making a joke, basically, of the house of God, which ticked Jesus off. Isn't it amazing? How rarely in Christendom we ever hear about Jesus, the angry Savior. That's not my Jesus. My Jesus just loves. Loves, loves, loves. He loves those pedophiles, those murderers, those sex abusers, the wife beaters. He loves those who are cutting off heads of women and children and brutalizing women. He just loves. That's my Jesus. No, Jesus gets mad. And who was Jesus? He was the unflawed, perfect God of the universe incarnate in human form. Yeah, God gets angry at sin. And he gets ticked off, as we see. We need to note it wasn't the godless or the ungodly who were Jesus' arch enemies, it was the duplicitous uber-religious leaders of the religious system of Judaism, which Jesus was filling out, which Jesus was fulfilling. And they had thousands of years of prophecy in their Torah telling about the Messiah who would come and why he would come and what he would do. He wasn't destroying Judaism as he was accused. He was taking it to a whole new level which would be called christianity and with the exception of the cleansing of the temple it was pretty much only the religious hypocrites with whom jesus didn't hold back and satan's mo carries through time enter george whitfield revivalist preacher from the early born in the early 1700s Became a preacher in the early to mid-1700s, and he was taking Europe by storm. He was more popular in Europe, and I mean the entire place, the entire European countries in all, gathering 60, 80, 100,000 people, three, four, five times a week, with no, no microphones, no amplification, and preaching the good news of Jesus Christ. And, yet he, and then he would make several pilgrimages across the Atlantic just to preach on invitation in this yet-to-be-formed new nation in the 13 colonies. And yet he had enemies. So intense were his enemies that he somehow successfully survived an assassination attempt on his life in his home while he slept in his bed. But who were his arch enemies? It wasn't the godless or the ungodly, it was the state church that was Whitfield's greatest enemy. Why? Because he started calling out the hypocrisy and the liberalism of the Church of England's leadership and clergy. You see, Satan does not change his M.O. So when Jesus enters the temple, he not only upended the money changers who were denigrating the house of God, but he upended the complacent, the scurrilous, unregenerate religious leaders of the day. And here they are, once again, confronting God in human form, implicitly accusing him, challenging his right, his authority, his arrogance, his audacity to turn things upside down, asking, who do you think you are? Being fueled by the principalities and powers in dark places. The religious elite ask, by what authority are you doing these things, or who gave you this authority? And Jesus could have answered, because I am God. But they already knew and were keenly aware of those claims, which was part of their issue. And then, of course, for them, there were those pesky miracles that they just couldn't somehow Get around those. You see, this isn't the first time that they asked Jesus, by what authority are you doing thus and such? In fact, this is the seventh time that we've seen in the Gospel of Mark where authority is a significant issue. But the Sanhedrin's interrogation of Jesus along these lines actually to the unknowing sounds reasonably controlled. If you come to this without context, without the context of what's already transpired many times with these scurrilous religious imposters, they almost, they almost sound sincere. Hey, we're just trying to find out what's going on here. We don't have any axe to grind. Oh, no. We're just performing our due diligence. You know, watching over the temple. It's what we do. But the question from them is out there. By what or by whose authority do you do these things? And what does Jesus do? He smells the putrefaction, that's the rotting of organic material. He smells the putrefaction of dishonest inquiry. They're not watching over the temple. They want Jesus dead or dead. So Jesus says, and this is instructive to us, verse 29, I will ask you one question. He didn't answer that. He just said, I will ask you one question, and you answer me. And then I will tell you by what authority I do these things. Was the baptism of John from heaven or from men? Answer me. Hmm. That's twice in that little verse, a couple of verses there, that Jesus says, answer me. Two times, and they occur as a bookend surrounding the question that he puts forth, emphasizing the fact that I'm not asking this as a rhetorical question to you guys. This isn't to make you think, hmm, no, I want an answer, and you answer me now, loud and good and clear for all the crowds that were there listening to this whole interaction so that they can hear your answer. So let's take a lesson here. What Jesus does is he commandeers this inquisition. And the lesson is, the Christian, when engaging a dishonest culture, or a dishonest individual or individuals, doesn't have to follow the rules of discourse set by those whose purposes are wicked. At the risk of setting someone's blood pressure up a little bit. I can't think of a more recent, current, profound example of not falling prey to letting the enemy, so to speak, always frame the argument and the discussion. CNN reporter, it was just revealed that they absolutely, this is not in dispute by anyone, including them, fabricated the most wretched material. They even sent an envoy over to England to obtain this dossier to implicate Trump in all this sexual perversion and everything else that went on. Absolutely bogus. And CNN knew that before they ever put it out. So here now is the CNN reporter at the first press conference of the, the President of the United States or going to be President of the United States or whatever the situation was. It's all a blur to me. And he says, Mr. President, I, I, have, a, I have a question. And he says... You are fake news. No. And he goes to the next person. And he's like, Mr. President, Mr. President, look. Yeah. He says, no, you're fake news. Fake news. Talk to the hand. He didn't say that. I said, talk to the hand. No. He says, no, I'm not taking your question. Now quit being rude. He takes the question over here, and this guy's still going at it. And he just says, no, I am not taking your question. Next. Exactly what Jesus does. Why We don't have to sit there and fall in line with the being painted into a corner. And I see this happening in public. I saw it all during all those hostile debates with the Christian Civic League, you know, 10, 15 years ago, whatever that was, when all this was going on and everything else, and getting wedged into a corner where they have taken the control and their motives are absolutely duplicitous and heinous. Jesus doesn't allow that to happen. If anyone was the master of the verbal takedown, and yes, I'm talking about the loving Jesus. Today, when you go home, just turn to Matthew chapter 23. There's not an instance. There's not a phrase. There's not a verse. There is an entire diatribe of Jesus going at the religious leaders, the hypocrites of the day and I mean dressing them down, calling them virtually anything and everything under the sun, even telling them they are going to hell, and worse than that, every convert that they change to their way of thinking, they make that person twice his words, twice the child of hell as yourselves. I mean, he did not hold back. The Savior gets mad. God gets mad. Perhaps Jesus, I don't, he doesn't have to keep this in mind, but Proverbs 26 comes to mind in the wisdom of Solomon who says answer a fool according to his folly lest he become wise in his own eyes meaning if you can take down the dishonest doubter through the the through just whatever take him down Jesus did it repeatedly so Jesus refused to fall for their setup and instead Jesus sets them up. You answer me. Verse thirty one. So they began reasoning among themselves. Don't oh, we're in a tight spot saying, If we say that John the Baptist would you know, if, if all that if he was from heaven, then he will say, Then why didn't you believe him? And then again if we say, Well, John the Baptist, oh yeah, he was just from men. He was a little whacked out there, you know, eating the locusts and honey and stuff like that. They were afraid of the people because everyone considered John to have been a real prophet. So, answering Jesus, they said, uh, We don't know. <laughs> and of course, Jesus knows they are copping out, and their dishonest motives are laid bare. The rest of verse 33 Jesus says to them, Then neither will I tell you by what authority. I do these things. You won't answer my question. I'm not going to answer your question. Ka, boom, mic drop, walk off the stage. (laughs) Let's get real. The religious leaders of the day are standing before whom? Who are they dressing down? They are dressing down the incarnate, inspired, infallible, inerrant, authoritative Word of God in human form. That's what John 1, 1 says. In the beginning was God, and the Word was God, and the Word was with God. And about seven verses later, and He dwelt among us, and we saw His glories of the only begotten of the Father. Jesus is called the Word of God in human form. And what does the writer of Hebrews, Hebrews is all about the superiority of Jesus over anyone and everything, say, in chapter 4. He says about the Word that the Word of God is living and active, and it's sharper than any two-edged sword, and is able to pierce through the division of soul and spirit of both joints and marrow, and is able to judge every thought and every intention of the heart. And there is no creature hidden from his sight, but all things are open and laid bare before the eyes of him with whom we have to do that's who they are attacking God knows and God reveals who and what we all are sports fans we we can successfully deceive those around us we can pull the wool over the eyes of anyone for our purposes in fact we are so masterful at deceiving ourselves according to Jeremiah 17 9 and 10 that we can masterfully lie to ourselves, believing the lie that we have advanced for our purposes. But I tell you this morning, it is never wise to go head-to-head with the living God who embodies the living, breathing Word. Which is just one more reason. As Pastor Ben was talking about the little reading schedules, one more reason. Why we need, as followers of Christ, to be endeavoring to be in his word in a regular, ideally daily way through the scriptures from beginning to end as a goal each and every year. We talk about that a lot here. I have over the past 26 years. Because the word and spending time with God in the word shouts the truth to us even when we have grown comfortable with our own deceit. The snare laid by the religious hypocrites fails yet again because it's, not, it's just not time yet. It's not time for Jesus' earthly mission to escalate to that place of completion with his work on earth, meaning the cross and resurrection. Phase one is not complete. Phase one was his salvation and mercy. And phase two, we yet await when he will return once again in judgment. I end this morning with Psalm 2. I haven't been watching the news or seeing the news or anything else in the last 24 hours. Somebody texted me. I just happened to see it right before I was going to bed. And they said, Oh, I forgot, it's Saturday evening. You're probably in bed. Well, I was just getting into bed. You know, it was like 7. No, it wasn't that early. <laughs> it wasn't that early. And it was from a friend, and he said, You're probably not watching the news. He says, But what's going, around, what's going on around the world is ridiculous. Now, of course, I've made assumptions about what he's referring to. I can only guess, and I can only imagine. But as soon as I saw that, I thought, Psalm 2 still sums up it all. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed. That would be the Messiah, the Savior. Let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs. He laughs at the foolishness of nations that are in an uproar against God and against godly things, either directly or indirectly, approving, supporting, condoning, leading people astray to things that are absolutely vile and offensive to the heart and mind of God. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath. Uh Uh-oh. And terrify them in his fury, saying, as for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. Referring again to the Messiah is coming. Remember, this was Old Testament. He hadn't come yet, but he's on his way. The First time in mercy and grace. The second time, the end of the story, when judgment will come forth. And don't, make, don't misunderstand that somehow I, I say those words of judgment and God's not a God of love and all of that as if I delight in the fact that people are so blind and just so rebellious against them. And not, God says he desires that no one perish. But he knows full well that people are perishing because they have rejected the one and the only way to heaven. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except by me. It's not by what you think or the God that you have created or the religion that you've embraced or the whatever of peace or this of meditation and this and that and the other thing or doing good works till you're blue in the face. All our righteousness are filthy rags, says the word of God. That's why God came and took on human form to come and obey and fulfill every jot and tittle of every law and every command that the Father had on you and me and stills expect, still expects them to be fulfilled. But he knew we could not, and so he came and did it for us. And Jesus says to all of mankind, I offer you, I do not impose upon you, I do not automatically glue it to you, It is your choice, but I offer you my complete, perfect obedience to God the Father on your behalf, which still leaves your sin undealt with. And that is why I went to the cross, so that the wrath of God against all wickedness and ungodliness was poured out upon me, your Savior, your Substitute. So now it's all taken care of. When you die and you go to heaven, you have the absolute perfection and righteousness of God himself credited to you, covering you. They're described in Isaiah as as robes of righteousness and garments of salvation. They are Jesus, not ours. Which is why when we stand before God, we know with absolute certainty, not hoping, but with certainty, 1 John 5, these things have I written unto to you that believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know, not that you may hope, that you may know that you have eternal life. But there is only one way, and it is through Jesus, the loving Savior, who offers it to everyone, but he does not force it upon anyone. Amen. Let me have you stand this morning. you've been here a while, you know that I hardly ever do this. No real reason other than I wait till I'm compelled by God to do stuff. I don't do them because it's a tradition that somebody expects or what have you. I'm going to ask you to bow your heads. And I'm going to ask two questions. And this is for you before God Almighty and me. Because I've got my eyes open. if you are playing religion and playing with Jesus and you know it right now, your soul, your heart is tweaked by God Almighty. If you've been playing with him and you know it's time to stop and you want to get serious, would you just stick your hand in the air and just leave it there for a second? Put it up. Thank you. Keep it there. And now, if you do not know this Jesus, not the popular Jesus or the recreated Jesus, but the Jesus of scriptures, who you've heard described in his work and his winsomeness and his phenomenal love this morning, and you know you need him, would you raise your hand? Father in heaven, thank you. Go ahead and put him down. Thank you, Lord, you saw every hand this morning. You know the different needs of the two different people, the two different questions. By the power of your Holy Spirit now, we announce and proclaim that Satan's schemes to subvert your plans for them in their lives now and today and forevermore have been obliterated. And let this day be a day of new life and new birth and a new pilgrimage in which you will see them every step of the way. Compel them, O oh God, to follow in your footsteps, and to make it known to somebody today of the decision they made this morning that they can obtain help and friendship and companionship in this new road of life following Jesus. Lord in heaven, thank you. Thank you that you truly are a God of love. The cross shows that proof positive. Thank you thank you for your love is unending and everlasting. We praise your name this morning for your glory. Amen.